Yes, welcome everyone. We are in the post-human era. What does this mean? What does it mean to be post-human? We are going to explore this fascinating, inspiring and exciting notion in our podcast, Post-Humans. Plural because we are going to interview scientists, artists, philosophers, scholars, and everyone who is engaging with this notion and who is helping us to understand more thoroughly and more deeply what does it mean to be post-human in the 21st century. So please be ready for a fascinating journey into the post-human. Posthumans, I'm very, very uh, happy to be here uh, with a conversation today. Uh, we have the honor to have Ben Zion, who is uh, actually running as a presidential candidate for 2020 in the United States. Uh, this is uh, Ben on my uh, right, and on my left, uh, we have Julian Boylan. He's been a member of the New York Posthuman Research Group since year 2014. So we're going to be talking about politics. Uh, this is a little unusual since my, our vlog is usually more about philosophy and uh, emerging technologies and possible futures to think together. But uh, Ben has uh, some very interesting proposals that we're going to be discussing together about how maybe politics can be changed or maybe not, we're going to see. So a little more about Ben. Um, ben advocates for a public health service which would treat aging as a disease and for a broad state of e-governance and decentralization initiatives, including a blockchain voting across the United States. I should also mention that he is the Transhumanist Party candidate for president. He is a part of the Transhumanist Party, which again might be a surprise because it's a kind of new party as well, eh? politics good to talk about. So first of all, Ben, very, very welcome to the vlog. Yes, yes, thank you, Francesca. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Um, very welcome, thank Julian. You. Hi, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned that we are a new party. We just had our fifth anniversary on November 7th. And uh, so um, I'm only the second uh, person, the founder of our party, ran for president in 2016. Uh, people might recall that he toured around the United mm -hmm. States in an immortality bus, mm -hmm. uh, raising awareness for the subject that you mentioned, uh, 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 radical life extension. And that is a, a big part of what the Transhumanist Party is about. But there's many, many features. My platform is called the Futurist New Deal for America, and it was conceived uh, with a mind to seeing uh, that the stage is set uh, for a country that can sustain radical life extension, for a country that can sustain uh, indefinite lifespan, and also sustain other things uh, uh, leading uh, in, in that time frame, like uh, uh, full industrialization and post-scarcity. And so the, the policy initiatives uh, that we're going to describe around digitalization, e-governance, uh, blockchain voting, also, this Social Security for All program funded by the federal land dividend. Um, all of these things uh, were, were conceived of in order to help us to meet these futurist ends. And um, we worked very closely with a lot of great people in the Transhumanist Party and um, done so many wonderful interviews and things. And uh, we're really happy to be here at, uh, at Princeton Envision and, and really having a great weekend. Yeah, exactly. So we should mention that we're actually now sitting uh, at Princeton University during the conference Envision, which has been wonderful. So, yeah, let's talk a little more about uh, these uh, topics that you are uh, bringing, uh, which uh, are not often connected to politics. For instance, uh, radical life extension. 
actually by many people is seen as science fiction. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, is that even an actual possibility? Second of all, why is connected to politics? And third one, you mentioned that some countries can sustain radical left extension. So would that something that is considered a privilege? Some countries can, you know, go into radical left extension, some other countries not, or is based on class. So let's talk about more like radical left extension as a political agenda, because again, a lot of people can see that this may be as a scientific endeavor or, as a, or, a, or science fiction, but you're talking about politics here. So yes, yes. Um, so uh, this, uh, the prospects for uh, life extension have changed in recent years. Um, in this uh, post-CRISPR era, uh, this idea has become a more credible one. Uh, and you, we, our, our friend Aubrey de Grey, um, he, you, you interviewed him, and he will describe at great length uh, the many kinds of interventions that are, are coming to market. And uh, these things uh, could uh, very quickly lead to indefinite lifespan, or certainly a, a much dramatically longer well span all of these things are very good outcomes. We mentioned uh, other countries. Uh, my friend Paul Spiegel, the futurist attorney, uh, he was recently appointed to an honorary consul position uh, for a small country, uh, San Marino, and uh, his collaboration with them is in the interest of building what we've described. Uh, their public health service is fully realized, unlike the United States, which uh, does not have a, a, a public health service that. Uh, that provides this level of service to all citizens, unfortunately, the only developed nation in the world that uh, is lacking in this area to that high degree. But he was invited uh, to this honorary consul position uh, to develop their public health service, which is very fine, into a public health service that treats aging as a disease. And uh, in doing this, we can, uh, in the United States, be shifting these many trillions of dollars that are spent on end-of-life care, effectively triage. We don't want to begrudge those good folks uh, the medical care that they need, but what we can do is start moving uh, those funds towards preventative measures of the kind that Aubrey de Grey uh, described in your interview. And uh, in doing so, we can uh, uh, save a lot of money, uh, become far more efficient, and also um, in, in time, perhaps, have this option for indefinite lifespan for those folks who want it. Not everyone is desirous of this, um, but my feeling is that overwhelmingly people are de facto life extensionists. If their public health service offered these things, uh, they would take it. Uh, so it's, it's just a matter of uh, raising a public awareness and creating a political will in, in support of these institutions. Let me ask you a question that um, to me is very important. So I'm aware of a whole movement, especially within the transhumanist narrative of changing the discourse of aging into uh, a disease, yes. because they would allow, exactly you said, a shift in, in funding. Mm. But I see a, a real risk here is that once aging is seen as a disease, then uh, discrimination based on age is actually going to be even uh, more uh, supported by public views. All of a sudden, you're not just uh, an old person, mm. which is already we have ageism, but now you're a diseased person. Mm. As a politician, what do you see? Don't you see an issue here? Uh, that, is, that is a potentially concerning uh, development, but we have to also assume uh, that in this framework uh, that you described, uh, that we are um, uh, slowing and even uh, reversing the aging process uh, so that no one need necessarily be exposed to such a stigma. Th that, that, is, that is a possibility. Ageism is already a possibility in our society. And I'm not inclined to think that more honesty and more clarity on the subject 
from a medical perspective will contribute substantively to that problem. But it is something that we, we should all be aware of and sensitive to. With some of these policies, why is this the role of government and in what sense is it necessary to run as a presidential candidate to promote these platforms as opposed to, I don't know, private or within the current health system or some of the systems that other candidates are proposing? Yes, yes, uh, that's, that is an excellent question. Um, well, it is described in the United States uh, Transhumanist Party do uh, charter documents that we are an advocacy organization. Uh, so we want to uh, uh, use uh, this exposure to raise awareness for these uh, subjects. But we also want to be doing, uh, making a serious contribution to political philosophy. And uh, mostly, uh, as we said, uh, most of those de facto life extensionists, a lot of them have not yet considered this prospect. They're not necessarily fully aware that they're living in this post-CRISPR world. And so um, uh, making them uh, aware of that could allow us to create a political climate where we could actually be creating these kinds of institutions. And um, similarly, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about e-governance and blockchain voting. Uh, this, is, this is also something uh, that um, could, could change the face of, of the way that these kinds of institutions are run. And I think that uh, it's incumbent upon us uh, to share these ideas with folks and getting, get them thinking about this uh, so that, uh, because right now, many of these technologies are possible. Estonia has a blockchain voting system and um, we run the risk uh, by ignoring these prospects in digitalization and advanced technology generally of having these things become orphan works where they're not being utilized and that has a toll, uh, that, that, that has a cost associated uh, with it uh, just as um, 110,000 people uh, die every year, every, every day rather, of aging. And um, by uh, changing this discussion, we could help combat that um, by, uh, by making government more efficient in these ways. Uh, we would be improving uh, our prospects for human development considerably. So yeah, before we go to the second part, which is about e-governance, I have one more question about uh, radical life extension, which is a classic uh, critique. Mm. How are you going to do with resources? If everyone, if now if you're the president, and actually, as we, uh, Ben also believe in basic, uh, universal basic income. Mm. So let's say that you make this available, and let's say that in a speculative frame, this is already happening because we are not there yet with the radical life extension. But if we are getting there and everyone have access to this, how are you going to do with resources? Mm, yes. So there are there are uh, uh, uses of some technologies like this that would not be a good use of resources. It came up in our recent primary election, which ended eight weeks ago. Uh, one candidate uh, was asked and then uh, proposed uh, that cryonics be publicly funded. And I'm not inclined to think that that would be a good use of public funds at this time. Uh, so there are uh, ways in which the funding of, of uh, public health with a mind to life extension uh, could, could lead to incredible waste or excess. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, using data science and using genomics and uh, using uh, these prospects for uh, oversight, uh, biometrics, um, these things will reduce costs. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, famously said that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, so we can use those many trillions of dollars much more effectively uh, by spending them on these preventative measures, especially as these things are, are becoming much lower in cost and in some cases uh, being, um, uh, becoming a, a real possibility. And what about earth resources? If mm. with the problem with the issue of overpopulation, mm. If you know people are still going to be born at the rate that they are now, and no one is dying, how are you going to get uh, everyone 
enough food to survive. Mm, yes, that's a good question. Aubrey de Grey sometimes uh, talks about this also. Now, it is true uh, that uh, there, there, there may be serious problems along this uh, Malthusian dilemma, uh, but in the developed world today, uh, we see that um, in, in when there is a certain level of economic development, a certain level of political stability, uh, that the birth rates are below replacement, at or below replacement, uh, uniformly across uh, the developed world. And so uh, as, we, as we continue to have more providence um, in, other, in other nations and more political stability in other nations, I think that this uh, Malthusian dilemma will continue to wane as it already has in recent decades. And uh, ultimately, uh, the, the bump that would occur from uh, people uh, living, having uh, the option, increasingly the option of indefinite life uh, extension, would not be greater than the, the level uh, of replacement uh, in the developed world. So um, there, there's, there's good reason to suppose that we are at a stable, uh, nearing a stable population number. Thank you, Ben. Uh, tell us a little more about uh, uh, e-governance. What do you mean, first of all, by that? Yes. And what kind of possibilities opens and, uh, and maybe other risks also that could open? And why it's not done at the moment? Yes. And you, you brought the example of Estonia. So tell us a little more about what does e-governance means? Why do you support it? And mm. uh, an example in which it's successful. Yes, yes. Uh, so I was lucky enough uh, to interview a gentleman named Florian Marcus and he is an Estonian e-governance emissary. And um, uh, he was on my podcast, the Futurist New Deal podcast. And, uh, and uh, he told us all about these things. Uh, many people uh, don't know that much about uh, blockchain voting, iVoting, but they have a fully functioning iVoting system in Estonia. And about 55% of voters uh, use uh, this blockchain voting system every time uh, they cast their ballot. And um, it's, it's working very well. They have a two-factor authentication system uh, so they don't have trouble uh, with, with hacking. What they do have is the good benefits that derive from digitalization generally, um, easier access to the ballot, um, uh, and uh, all of these other e-services are similarly beneficial. Uh, so the idea is that we can move towards a more decentralized governance uh, framework in time, and uh, a good first step to that is uh, embracing these kinds of services. Uh, blockchain voting is I, I do believe it's a step uh, towards ultimately a fully uh, realized uh, voluntarist society and a more decentralized uh, society. And so this is a, in the way that I was saying we want to set the stage uh, for uh, a, a 21st century uh, America. This is, uh, this is a good step in that direction. And uh, would that be an option or would it be the only option? Uh, yeah, we want to create this option. Yes. Uh, and in Estonia, uh, I mentioned 55% of voters uh, do vote this way. Uh, the other 45% of voters uh, vote the old-fashioned way. They get together with their family and go uh, and go and cast their ballot in person or have they have uh, additional options as, as we have today. Uh, so uh, we, we would not want to force people to vote uh, in that way. Uh, we just want to uh, make the system uh, more efficient and give people this option across the United States. Thank you, Ben. Any question about e-voting? Uh, no, it frightens me, but I'm curious to see if it could actually work in the future because it's also very exciting. Yes, yes. And, and it's, it's, it's true that there are some cybersecurity issues, uh, but Estonia has not had serious problems. Uh, their two-factor authentication system and these other uh, cybersecurity elements that are built into their system, they've not had any serious attacks. So they have, the, the citizens of this country have never considered, for example, uh, rolling back this program. Presumably that also implies some kind of national 
two-factor ID or something like that. Yes, well. yes, they have a, they have an ID card across the country. And uh, Estonia is a relatively small country. It's less than uh, less than 10 million people. And uh, that does make a difference uh, in these kinds of things. Uh, but uh, they're, they're, they also have uh, uh, an exciting program, a digital, uh, a digital citizenship uh, program. So uh, people from other countries can uh, secure a visa of a kind and be using government services and starting businesses uh, through these e-service portals with the Estonian government. It's a very novel and uh, uh, exciting, exciting program. Yeah, the main, uh, it's a big problem in the United States. Uh, the problem with, uh, with uh, democracy in the United States, not so much to do with hackers, but more to do with uh, wholesale voter suppression. Um, a lot of very, very, very low turnout in a lot of these elections. That's not because oh, that's not only because people have become disinterested. They have a kind of learned helplessness about these things. But it's also uh, because uh, there are uh, organizations and institutions in the two party system that are actively disenfranchising voters in a variety of ways, uh, gerrymandering and uh, things like this. And um, and something like uh, e-voting, uh, uh, blockchain voting is, is a workaround. Uh, to see that we are, uh, enfranchise uh, all the voters here in this country. So what is uh, the risk of data mining with e-voting? Uh, yes, there are, there are these kind of uh, cybersecurity concerns. Uh, there are concerns with, um, uh, to some degree, with uh, people's data being uh, used but, um, or, or misused. Uh, but, but by and large, uh, this is metadata. It's, uh, and it's, and uh, in Estonia, for example, uh, they've not had serious hacks where people's uh, personal information has been compromised. And uh, it's another thing about a blockchain uh, where um, there's a certain level of, of transparency uh, that allows for a little bit easier oversight uh, to, to ensure that these uh, government agencies are able to maintain the health of that system. We already have um, public voting metadata that is widely used, yes, including yes. for advertising and data mining. Much of this that. is to some degree a matter of public record. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so I'd like to ask um, another question because Estonia is based in Europe and Europe have very different laws about digital privacy. Mm. Now, if you're going to e-vote in the US, you need to place some type of rights and some type of law about digital privacy, which they are not there at the moment. What kind of plan do you have about digital privacy? Yes. Uh, well, um, I, I, I think uh, a good, uh, a good uh, example of this in another presidential candidate is Andrew Yang. Uh, he has uh, campaigned in support of people re retaining those rights uh, more fully. Uh, so uh, he has taken a position a little bit similar to that of another candidate, Elizabeth Warren, in uh, having uh, these uh, big data companies uh, revert those rights uh, to the citizen, an important step. We also want to see that kind of uh, protection uh, in, with respect to genomics. We want to see that, people's, uh, that people have greater ownership of, of that data as well. There, it, it, is, uh, it is a serious consideration, and we do need to, as a country, uh, have greater protections, as we see in other developed countries. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, what is your take on the law to be digitally forgotten, for instance, in Europe, yes. especially for underage people? What do you think of uh, the fact that you have the right to ask platforms like uh, Facebook or whatever to, to get rid of all your information? Yes. Um, what yes. do you think of that? Yes, that is, that is, that is a right that people have. And that is uh, um, another feature of what I mentioned of Andrew Yang's uh, uh, platform. Uh, th uh, this, uh, this right uh, to, uh, to have this uh, content revert back to yourself and have the option to have it removed entirely. 
Uh, this is something that people should have. Unfortunately, it's not, it's not entirely uh, done in the United States, and we need to see these kinds of protections. I met Andrew Yang a few weeks ago on the campaign trail. I was very excited. I got to ask him a question uh, at one of his campaign events and uh, and I say a quick hello, and it was a really, a really a, a nice time. Um, he's also, um, he is also, I think, a kind of techno progressive, falls under this uh, futurist umbrella as well. Um, I think one thing that separates um, uh, people in the transhumanist party from uh, someone like Andrew Yang is this interest in uh, life extension. Uh, that is very much an organizing principle of our community. And uh, it's something that we want to be raising awareness for as much as possible. I was very pleased uh, to see that uh, life extensionists were quite well represented here at Princeton Envision. Aubrey de Grey uh, did some wonderful workshop and presentation also today. John, do, do you have any question about e-governance? Uh... Well, I would like a little more detail on digital privacy ideas. Um, would it be something similar to GDPR? And then the second part of the question is, a lot of the things that we're afraid about with privacy is the government using our information, whether that's the NSA or you know law enforcement. Um, Australia recently passed a really what I think is crazy law, basically making en encryption difficult and trying to put back doors in encryption. Um, how do you push back on that? What is what is the way to push back on on those government uses? Of yes, privacy? it's true that we live in a world where there is has in recent decades been a lot of government surveillance, in recent years, uh, corporate surveillance. And uh, we already mentioned uh, some of the uh, protections uh, against that and the, nest and, the, and the need for that. Uh, we also need to protect citizens uh, from uh, this um, uh, government intrusion. But we also need to consider that uh, the, the 21st century is going to be uh, an increasingly complicated and dangerous place. We need to shift not only away from government surveillance and corporate surveillance, but we also need to shift into something more like a panopticon uh, society uh, where uh, we are willing to uh, be sharing uh, this metadata in a more decentralized way uh, because there are, ex there are some existential risks that uh, derive uh, from not doing so. I know uh, a number of graduate students who, if they were uh, so inclined, which they are not, uh, would have the uh, technical prowess in, as graduate students in the life sciences uh, to create a very dangerous bioweapon today. This is a feature of living in this post-CRISPR world. Uh, this um, Eliezer Yudkowsky uh, has uh, famously referred to uh, not Moore's Law, but uh, a, a, a rather tongue-in-cheek version of Moore's Law, Moore's Law of Mad Scientists, where uh, every 18 months, the IQ points required to destroy the entire Earth comes down by one point. Uh, so, and the cost uh, uh, similarly. But we definitely, uh, first and foremost, need to have protections against uh, corporate and government overreach in these areas. And that, uh, that is a fundamental right. And it is uh, better dealt with in other countries to a high degree uh, in the developed world than in the United States. And we need to emulate that and also move forward in other directions. What about the people who are actually getting interested to be much less into this panopticon and people who actually do not want to be in this anymore? And I'm talking about young people even, eh? because at one point, there was the, the hype of technology, and people were excited, and technology is the extension of us. Now, especially in the last couple of years, mm. I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, you know, like the work of uh, Tristan Harris mm. uh, that used to be working at yeah, Google, Stanford. telling us more about Google yeah. and how all this engagement is real about addiction and getting and mining data of yeah, people. Yeah. And, and then um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Yeah, yeah. So 
there is, I definitely see a shift in the way uh, people, even people who were used to be very interested in technology, are seeing something else now. Eh? Even, for instance, uh, um, someone like Sherry Tarkol, she was so excited about technology, uh, talking about Harvard University, she works there, and you know, she wrote the second self in the 90s, and now she's talking about, uh, uh, you know, like uh, alone together, when you know, we are so much in, immersed in technology that we are pretty much uh, forgetting uh, society itself. Mm. So you're very much still techno-optimist, and, uh, and I do see a shift in, in the way technology is perceived. And I'm asking you, what about those people who are actually feeling less and less uh, to be wanting to be part of this panopticon? Hmm. And they're right not to be part of this at all. Yes, yes. Uh, so people, uh, people uh, have uh, a very reasonable uh, concern about this in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandals, in the wake of other uh, problems of this kind. Um, and I, I would tend to think that uh, uh, this is a blip on the radar. Some of this is a uh, failing of algorithms and uh, interfaces. You know, uh, just as we're moving away from uh, using uh, touchscreens and typing, uh, these are not the, the healthiest kinds of things, but we're moving every day towards more uh, natural language processing, uh, increasingly having options for head-up devices and other interfaces. These things uh, describe are, are very much in keeping with a more um, a natural human way of communicating, uh, something that tends to uh, uh, create less of this kind of neurosis. Similarly, with the problems around institutions like Cambridge Analytica, maybe uh, Mark Zuckerberg is overconfident in his ability to uh, introduce uh, new algorithms that will fix these problems. But certainly, we're moving in, in that direction. And so um, I would encourage people who, who want to withdraw to consider that uh, we will find solutions to these problems in, in short order. And, um, and also that, that uh, they do have that right to be at some remove uh, from this, uh, that that, uh, but uh, in in talking about this um, uh, move towards a panopticon society, uh, we should th think of it more in this the broader socio-political terms, um, so that we can um, uh, see a groundswell um, uh, moving us towards uh, this this better world. Um, and but we don't want to um, ostracize uh, people um, who are not at the vanguard of that. The last question on these. Uh Obviously, with e-governance and e-voting, you're going to use, use algorithms. And a lot of uh, uh, recent research has shown a lot of implicit biases in the algorithms, sexist biases and racist biases. Mm. So once you have a whole governance based on algorithms, are you not worried that a lot of the same issues that we see in the history of humanity are going to come back mm. and not even detected? Mm. Uh, so how do you feel about, again, all the research that shows that, again, algorithms are not neutral? and they come from a perspective that is often biased and eh, with mm. racism, sexism, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Uh, so this was uh, the uh, subject of a presentation by uh, Dr. Brua Benjamin, uh, and uh, she, an incredible presentation. Uh, and she, but she also described uh, some ways uh, to address this, also with uh, advanced algorithms. And uh, we do need to fix those problems. We should not have institutional bias of this kind, especially if it's, it's a little bit hidden from view. Uh, there is a reality of, of data science that some of these things are uh, tending to be black boxes uh, where we, do, we can't exactly see uh, all of the inner workings uh, so fully. And uh, if, if that leads to uh, even a small amount of social inequity through those problems, uh, that is a serious concern. And uh, so um, uh, we will uh, continue to look at those kind of solutions uh, like uh, those that were suggested uh, by Dr. Benjamin. Uh, uh, institutional racism generally is a serious problem in institutions, 
um, in the United States, it's not just uh, an experience that one person has. It's a way that uh, entire groups of people are marginalized economically and in other ways. And um, um, I'm inclined to f uh, feel that uh, we've moved away from that as we move into the 20th century, and we'll continue to move away from that as we move uh, towards a more fully realized post-industrial society with things uh, like digitalization. So I, I consider the benefits of, of moving in this direction to be very great uh, for, uh, for human well-being. Uh, but we do have to be uh, to seriously consider uh, that uh, there are some uh, design flaws in some of these things, and we need to uh, take them apart and see that they are working a little bit better. What about the environment? Hmm. What is your take on uh, the relation between technology and ecology? A lot of uh, these technologies are made not to be sustainable. Yes. The waste, uh, um, a lot of minerals come from countries uh, at war. So. What yes. is your take on the relation between technology and ecology? Yes. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's become a cottage industry uh, in the 21st century uh, to refer to how millennials are ruining some industry by not participating as fully in the consumerism of previous generations. Uh, so I think that this, is, uh, this kind of wasteful behavior is trending down, but uh, yet we still have a lot of, uh, of concerns uh, like this uh, today. Um, it's um, it's a, f a feature of my platform uh, that we have, um, it's called the Futurist New Deal, and it has elements that borrow from the Green New Deal in trying to address some of these concerns. I also have uh, a geoengineering advisor. His name is uh, Daniel Gelishvili, and uh, he, he's, working, he's, he's worked with us to craft a policy plank for carbon capture and other concerns uh, that deal uh, with a better stewardship of the environment. And this is a very, very serious concern. The, the clock is ticking, folks. Uh, we need to consider the climate crisis and uh, act accordingly. The last question is about universal basic income, uh, which is part of your platform. How are you going to achieve that? A lot of people would be skeptical. Maybe they say, oh, that's a great idea, but how can you do that? For instance, in the United States, which is a very big country. Yeah. Yeah. And our, our basic income scheme, it derives from this fact that the United States is geographically large. Uh, most people are probably aware that 40% of the lands in the United States are federal lands. And uh, they were nationalized at the first part of the 20, 20th century uh, for, for reasons unrelated to uh, 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 generating revenue of this kind. Uh, but uh, my basic income is called the federal land dividend, and it's a social security for all dividend. And what it does is it leases uh, those 85% uh, of those 40% of lands in the United States are not national parks. We don't want to lease national parks. We want to lease the other lands. Um, and we want to uh, lease them to carbon neutral companies uh, that uh, agree to these stipulations so that they, after the end of this 10-year lease, they will return them in the condition that they receive them. They will not be contributing to the climate crisis. And all of these things are eminently doable. Um, and uh, by, uh, by leasing these many lands, uh, we could generate $173 trillion over a period of 10 years. And that would be enough to fund uh, middle-class income at $52,000 a year for every 18 to 63-year-old without contributing to concerns uh, of hyperinflation. This is a common reason, uh, a reason that some people would uh, criticize uh, the smaller basic income scheme of someone like Andrew Yang is that it could create problems with the economy, but because ours, it uses this novel funding mechanism, it would not uh, contribute negatively in those ways. So, I didn't get it. So the leasing of, uh, of what? Of, of It's a lot of land in the Western United States. Uh, so it's a lot of desert. 
um, uh, but uh, it is very much coveted. Uh, it's it's not it's not just an urban legend uh, that uh, uh, China has tr tried to buy a lot of land around the United States. So the point being, there's a lot of organizations not only in the United States uh, but without that would be happy uh, to agree to these stipulations to lease this land uh, for their uh, for their corporate headquarters or their carbon neutral factory or other. Uh, other installations of this kind? Well, that for me uh, is not very uh, desirable because I think with all the land that we've already damaged, I think that land that is not damaged yet should be absolutely untouched. And we should also think of the non-human, you know, the biosphere, non-human animals, yes. because I think we should really think of areas in which they're untouched by human as much as possible. And I think that the United States has so much land like that. It's a, it's a very precious thing that we should really make sure that it is uh, kept untouched. What do you think? Uh, I'm curious what kind of impact this would have on these lands and, and what is there right now. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, these lands are fairly diverse. They are uh, tending to be in the western United States. Uh, they are developable lands, we should say. We should and will continue to concern ourselves. Uh, for example, if a, if a species is put at risk as a result of a prospective development, then that development would not continue. Um, and, uh, but we also need to consider something that's come up a few times, uh, here at, um, at, at uh, Princeton Envision, uh, the uh, prospect of a robot apocalypse, uh, so to speak, 40% uh, of jobs are going to be automated out of existence in the next 15 years. And uh, if we don't have uh, some kind of system uh, like a basic income, like the Social Security for All program, when those truck drivers lose their jobs, when all of those 55% of workers in the United States uh, that work in uh, customer service and the like, uh, in low-paying jobs, when they lose their jobs, we are going to have uh, uh, be in a situation there where there could be substantial civil unrest, uh, and we need to consider how we're going to address that. And something uh, like uh, Social Security for All uh, would uh, not only ensure that those people are able to live well, uh, but it would also allow those people to do the things that they always wanted to do, uh, to start a partnership with their spouse, to start a sole proprietorship, to start a cooperative form. These forms are equally good as corporations. In some ways, they are good, better manifestations of, of a free market uh, than, than, than the large corporation, which has uh, undue influence over the United States government, I might add. Uh, so, uh, so we want to encourage uh, a new kind uh, of, of business model uh, for, for the citizen. And a basic income would change that. It's why a very conservative economist like Milton Freeman was in favor of a basic income because it would dramatically grow the economy, it would dramatically improve human development and well-being outcomes. That's but it. you know, there are other ways of, to go about it. Some people propose that every time you use the internet, you should get paid because you're giving free data that is actually being stored and sold. Yes, it should. There are other ways to go about it because really we need to preserve the land and we have already a lot of work to do with areas that are there that could be used, but first we need to restore it. Yes. And again, there is a, a lot of engineering work in, in restoring ecological areas that have been devastated and damaged. Yes, that, and that work must continue. Yes, that work must continue. And also I should say that it's a stipulation of the federal land dividend, my version of the federal land dividend, because the first uh, version was uh, created by Zoltan Isfin in 2016. He ran on this uh, platform also. Uh, but my version does include this carbon neutrality and also these aesthetic and ecological considerations not disrupting uh, the, the surrounding environment, uh, doing this in a way that would make sense.
Ben, thank you so much for uh, being with us. It was uh, very interesting talking to you. Thank and you. Uh, good luck with your campaign. And, um, you know, let's everyone, you know, like I know that we're all here trying to make a better place. And let's keep this conversation open. Because, yes. you know, sometimes uh, it's really important that uh, politics are uh, really engaging with reality and not just a game of power. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you Francesca. I, it was really nice uh, to finally meet you. We've been uh, said hello before online, and I'm glad that we got a chance to sit down and talk. And thank you, Julian, also. Thank Absolutely. you for contributing your ideas. Yes, yes. And I look forward to seeing you on a ballot in as many states as you can. Yes, yes. We already registered with the FEC. And uh, so we will uh, uh, be continuing to pursue ballot access. And I would encourage people in support of that to go to transhumanist-party.org. Uh, you can uh, check out our platform. You can go to transhumanist-party.org slash membership and please sign up. You can also uh, look at my website, benzion2020.com and learn a little bit more about these initiatives. And uh, also uh, in January, I'm going to be uh, uh, breaking the Guinness world record uh, for the longest period in virtual reality. And uh, so I'm very excited about that, that I'm going to be uh, exceeding uh, 42 hours and 42 seconds uh, spent in virtual reality. And um, um, uh, so a lot of exciting things happening in 2020 with this campaign. And I would encourage folks uh, to sign up and learn a little bit more about the Transhumanist Party. So wait, 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 wait a second. Okay. So what is the meaning of that? Like, what is the... For instance, I think of Korea, and a lot of people are very much into virtual reality to the point that uh, there was this case a couple of years ago in which the couple forgot that they had an actual kid and they were no nourishing a digital kid and the physical kid actually died. Yes, it's so terrible. what is this idea of like, uh, why is it good to be 46 hours in the virtual reality, for instance? Yes, yes. Well, I will say that I think that um, as a lifestyle, augmented reality has far greater promise. Um, and there are already a lot of augmented reality products. I would not encourage people uh, to completely forget the uh, physical world uh, to any degree and become that uh, immersed in virtual reality as, as in the ca tragic case uh, that you described. Uh, but uh, uh, something uh, like an augmented reality immersion, augmented, augmented and mixed reality is of course uh, separate from visual reality, you're not locked in. Uh, but you have an overlay uh, like a uh, Google Glass where you're seeing uh, and there's other products like Microsoft HoloLens and Meta. Uh, these are uh, uh, mixed reality and augmented reality products. And this is something that can be more healthily integrated into your social interactions and work life and uh, more normative kinds of experiences. Um, it is true. There are concerns with virtual reality immersion as a lifestyle uh, that uh, that should be addressed. And I would not necessarily encourage people uh, to go to great extremes in, in, in living that way. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, internet addiction of one form or another has been with us for decades now, and uh, we have to be responsible uh, with that. Uh, but uh, uh, this virtual reality immersion, um, it's a fun thing to do. Um, there are a lot of gamers who are really excited about this, and, um, and I've spent some few hours in, in full virtual reality immersion. I, and I, I actually may also go uh, the augmented reality full immersion record does not stand at all. So, um, and the, uh, there's uh, some, and I have access to augmented reality rigs, so I might uh, do that one as well, because I do want uh, to describe this not just as something for gamers, but something that would be a useful lifestyle uh, feature that people would begin to incorporate in a healthy way. Should avatars and robots get the right to vote? Uh, um, someday. <laughs> not yet. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a feature 
of the uh, Transhumanist Party uh, uh, charter documents, we do describe uh, the prospect of artificial personhood and also in uplifted creatures ultimately having uh, uh, citizenship protections. Uh, but in the near term, uh, what we will see is probably something more like uh, NPCs uh, uh, that uh, seem to resemble humans, uh, but I do not think that NPCs uh, should have the right to vote. <laughs> uh, so uh, for, for, the, for the foreseeable future, such as, uh, such as any such thing exists, uh, I do not expect that we will have artificial persons uh, be given citizenship protections. But in time, uh, just as in time, I think that we'll be able to uh, digitally upload our own minds, probably around that time, many decades from now, we will need to seriously consider uh, that that mind is equally a citizen. Thank you so much, Ben. And um, I would like just to mention that uh, the ideas here were um, brought for discussion because it's interesting that Ben is uh, bringing something that is more known in the field of philosophy, in the field of science and technology, and he's bringing it to the political arena. And my stand is not for, uh, for any of these parties. I think those kind of politics are outdated. But uh, I really appreciate Ben uh, doing something new. Mm. So again, uh, I think that he's worth getting into a conversation with. Uh, he's also a very kind person. So you know, if you're interested in this idea, feel free to, com you know, to connect yes. with, with Ben and asking questions. I think it's what you're trying to do is opening debate about these topics. Absolutely. We need to have that uh, kind of conversation as a society. And uh, to that end, I would also encourage people. I mentioned uh, benzion2020.com. There's a contact uh, form, but you can also email me directly at benzion2020 at gmail.com. Express your concerns, express your policy initiatives or, or other notions that you might have along these lines. And myself and the people at the Transhumanist Party would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, but, but also, I am going to continue to campaign beyond 2020. I am a life extensionist. I hope to have indefinite life uh, span very soon. Forever is a long time. And I do believe that I will be president one day. Awesome. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank, thank you, Francesca and Julian. This was really a, a blast. Hi, this is Julian Boylan, co-director of Posthumans. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ben Zion. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It doesn't have to say much, but it will help more people discover our show. Thanks.